This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. A podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those of you who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is our first episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 36, is entitled Godwin, Part 1. I hope you enjoy the show. is 1008, and the Dane, Swain Forkbeard, son of the legendary King Harald Bluetooth, is ravaging England. In retaliation, England's king, Ethelred II, creates the kingdom's largest navy in its already long history. It had been nearly two decades since Ethelred lost his second most powerful elderman, Britnoth of Essex, to the Norse Viking chieftain Olaf Tryggvason at the mouth of the River Blackwater, one mile east of the village of Malden. And the kingdom had, in the years since, been pummeled every other year or so with a mixture of attacks on its shores or outright extortion of its people, each payment being heavier than the previous. King Ethelred may not have been the best king for the crisis that came to be known as the Danish conquest of England, but enough was enough. The enemy came by water and England was forced to wait until they arrived to fight back. Well, no more. It was time to take the fight to them for a change, much like his great-great-grandfather, Alfred the Great, had done more than a century earlier. Sometimes waiting on a bully to act isn't the solution. Sometimes cowing to a bully's demands isn't the solution either. Sometimes a bully, when clearly identified as one, deserves and unexpected shock to the system, and sometimes a check on power is necessary. Good fences make good neighbors, right? Swain Forkbeard was nothing more than a murderous, greedy bully, as far as the English were concerned, and King Ethelred II was tired of the daily swirlies, sack checks, and public humiliations that he received. So, in order to stand up to a bully, one has to sometimes risk temporarily becoming a bully. Ethelred ordered his shiny new navy to take port at Sandwich, a strategically important port city on England's southeastern coast. Sandwich would remain such a strategic hotspot for England for centuries more, too, but for Ethelred, the sight of his force, taking in the salty breezes and the innumerable ships stretching to the horizon under the channel summer sun, what must have filled him with a little bit of that swag that a bully like King Swain of Denmark must have felt every time he set sail west. But Ethelred also knew full well the measure of a man. As heroic and wise and honorable a man could become, men were also greedy, ambitious, and capable of horrible treachery and violence. 
Witnessing this massive show of naval force must have also filled the king with dread. Who could possibly be trusted to wield such a massive show of muscle? But it wasn't just a question about who could be trusted not to waste such a magnificent (laughs) and expensive fleet. No, it went far, far deeper than that. Ethelred shuddered in the breeze. Who could be trusted not to turn this fleet inward on its own king? Men were guilty of far less than a little treason. And it was Ethelred's head on the line here. Literally, actually. The only sensible thing to do would be to split such a massive responsibility into two. One man no more powerful than the other. A built-in system of checks and balances. And as long as Ethelred was able to make each man happy, or at least questioning the other's intentions, neither one would be too inclined to make a move. His subjects and Sandwich bustled about the port, loading up the necessary supplies for such a fleet. The waves lapped against each ship, making one constant stream of noise that beckoned Ethelred into a possible afternoon nap. The sun shone on his face warmly, the seagulls squawked and grunted above, and as Ethelred resolved himself not to rest, he saw the two men he put in charge of this navy walking toward him. Ethelred thought he heard the gulls above him even laugh. He'd heard tell of seagulls sounding like an obnoxious laughing mob, but no. He shook that off and turned to his two appointed leaders. The first was a man from nearby Compton in Sussex, a local thane named Wolfnoth. He seemed very reliable, knowledgeable of naval affairs. And the other? Britric, brother of his most trusted advisor, Elderman Edric of Mercia, a man history would come to know as Edric Streona. From that meeting in Sandwich, in the presence of what Ethelred believed to be the saving grace of England against the horrible Danes, it didn't take long for Ethelred to once again be proven a fool, despite his best intentions, too. Britric threw some serious shade Wolfnoth's way, accusing the Thane of conspiring to turn the navy against the king, and when Ethelred sided with Britric, no doubt influenced by Elderman Edric, Wolfnoth left the kingdom and took some twenty ships and their battle-ready soldiers with him. This was exactly what Ethelred was desperate to stop from happening. So, in the eyes of his people, in the eyes of history, Ethelred Ethelredded this ride up, especially when his shiny new navy was now split into two, and a fifth of it is now, by now 1009, raiding and plundering like pirates along the southeastern and eastern coasts of England. Yeah, Wolfnoth was a bit bitter about it all, and bitter men can be dangerous things. Ethelred, though, wasn't done messing up this grand opportunity to defend his kingdom either. No, he he sent Britric, ever the loyal servant, by the way, with absolutely zero naval command, mind you, to follow the pirate and see to his destruction. However, in pure Ethelred fashion, a channel storm whipped up a frenzy as Britric neared Wolfnoth's fleet, and the king heard news of almost 80 ships, or at least splinters that were left of them, beginning to wash up on shore down coast. What's more, Wolfnoth, who had wisely taken shelter from the storm, backtracked, rowed ashore, and did a cleanup job that would make the Sicilian mafia frantically scribbling notes. 
Wolfnoth burnt any remains of the ships that may have been salvaged and had his men drive swords through any possible survivors. Ethelred's magnificent fleet, the possible answer to meet a bully on equal footing, was now down to 20 ships not even under the king's control. Ethelred's fleet was now 20 ships who were attacking his own shores, salvaging the wreckage of the other 80 and burning the remains. If that turn of events doesn't just scream Ethelred Unred, well, I don't know what else to say. And when Thorkel the Tall, the legendary Viking, was spotted off the coast of Sandwich shortly after the collapse of the English navy, Wolfnoth cautiously approached the Danish chieftain with his 20 ships of turncoats, and almost as, as if purposely in sight of the king on shore, Wolfnoth negotiated with Thorkel the Tall to join the mighty Dane on his raids. Britric is forever and publicly blamed for the loss of Ethelred's navy, and both Britric and Wolfnoth, at this point, drop from the record. Fast forward five years. We get the first mention in the records of a man named Godwin. Mystery surrounds this man's earliest years, but when his name appears on a document getting the royal restoration of lands in southern England, we start to have the first glimpses of an origin story for him. Author Ian Walker, in his book Harold, The Last Anglo-Saxon King, said that this new upstart thing named Godwin became a, quote, valued member of the entourage of Ethelstan Etheling, the king's eldest son, end quote. And remember, Ethelstan was the highly respected military leader and prince who had garnered massive respect wherever he went and acted as almost a beating heart to the English resistance to Danish invasion. And this young man, Godwin, had somehow earned his way onto an official document written and signed by Ethelstan and then approved by the king himself. This document was actually the last living will and testament of Ethelstan, implying the young heir knew something history has forgotten to tell the rest of us about his health. Ethelstan appealed to his father to be able to write this will and put in it what he wished. And one of the last things he wanted to say on this, on this plane of existence was this young member of his entourage, Godwin, was to have lands restored to him. Lands in Compton, in Sussex. Lands that, according to the records, had been abandoned officially since 1009 by a thane named Wolfnoth. Yes, this mysterious young man named Godwin is widely believed to be the son of Wolfnoth, the famous turncoat pirate who disappeared beyond the horizon with Thorkel the Tall's fleet. Okay, so to give the proper due diligence to the matter, one could certainly ask about other lands being vacated, even in southern England. Remember, England had been periodically ravaged for more than 20 years, and each year saw more and more Englishmen being murdered or sold into slavery. How can we be sure that Godwin's father was this Wolfnoth in particular? Well, Ethelstan's will itself reads, quote, I grant to Godwin, Wolfnoth's son, the estate at Compton, which his father possessed, end quote. Godwin was now a landowner. And then, as it is now, the ownership of land tends to lend its possessor to certain privileges. 
and Godwin was now being given royal approval in the eyes of English social hierarchy. This was big, and it seems to me that had not Ethelstan taken a liking to this young man, the entire 11th century, at least through the lens of the North Sea region, would have been very, very different. But as it went, Godwin was in the royal family's good graces, no doubt having served in Ethelstan's military. And if Godwin had ridden beside Ethelstan Etheling during his battles with the Danes and received a mention in the prince's will, then he most certainly would have broken bread with him and been a part of his inner circle. And we know of another who was also a part of Ethelstan's contingent, a younger brother, though plenty old enough to take the field of battle and close enough to the Etheling to get a prominent shout-out in Ethelstan's will too, Edmund. So it's almost a given that we can assume that Godwin and Edmund were close to one another as well, or at least close enough to be a part of the same conversation and the battles and the meals and whatnot. And when you throw in another little brother, Edwig, who was also most likely along for the ride, Godwin had achieved quite a turnaround from what his prospects looked like back in 1009. And it wasn't just Ethelstan, Edmund, and Edwig that Godwin rode with during those tumultuous years fighting the Danes. Within just a year or so of Ethelstan's death, another little brother joined Edmund's forces, one that would have as much an impact on the kingdom as Godwin. This kid's name was Edward, a brother from another mother, that is, as Ethelstan and Edmund and Edwig were sons of the marriage between King Ethelred and Queen Elfgifu, while Edward was the first son of King Ethelred and his second wife, Queen Emma of Normandy. So what can we gather about who young Godwin might have been? Having served with both Ethelstan and Edmund, who was soon to be called Ironsides, he would most definitely have needed to be a man of exceptional bravery and loyalty. But as Edmund showed himself to be of exceptional cunning and intelligence and leadership, Godwin was most likely taking copious notes during this time with, it, with the king. He had also thrown in his lot with King Edmund too first when he stayed with Edmund, when Edmund defied his father and stuck a particular finger up at his father's chief counselor, seeing him for the snake he was, and second, when he stayed with Edmund after the Battle of Ashenden and fled south of the Thames into, into the now Kingdom of Wessex, ruled by Edmund. Though by 1017, Ironsides was dead, and Edwig was the last remnant of Ethelred's first marriage to cling to, and that kid was no Ethelstan or Ironsides. And Edward was already in exile across the Channel in Normandy, so Godwin was kind of stuck. And to top it all off, this new king, Canute of Denmark, was putting damn near the entire English nobility on the chopping block, the most prominent being Edric Strayona, who had proven himself most likely the least trustworthy person on the entire island. And the thing about this new king, this Canute, was that though his name may have translated into Tide Knot, he actually wasn't all that complicated when it came to filling the top seats across the kingdom. In the end, loyalty and bravery and resourcefulness were the, way to get, were the ways to this guy's heart, and he especially held his former opponent, King Edmund, in pretty high regard. And any man who serves such a man must be worth an honest trial run. 
What about this Godwin guy that convinced Canute to, well, not ladle his eyeballs out of his skull or chop his head off? As early as 1018, Godwin was known to have torn through parts of southern England doing the tough and sometimes violent duty of collecting Canute's insufferable taxes, thus putting him on Canute's radar for sure. Also, the Vita Eduardi Regis, or The Life of King Edward, commissioned by King Edward's wife much later, shows us a clue when it describes Godwin as one of the, quote, new nobles, end quote. But again, why? Why a new noble? Well, Edward's own mother, Queen Emma, after thoroughly screwing up her eldest son's life, commissioned her own story to be written about her life, though it focused on her second husband, Canute, mostly. And to, basically to hell with Edward. I mean, seriously, to hell with that guy. But in this work, entitled Encomium Emi Regini, she makes sure to describe Canute's genuine admiration for his Anglo-Saxon opponent, Edmund Ironsides. And he, as the record says, quote, loved those whom he had heard to have fought previously for Edmund faithfully without deceit, and hated those whom he knew to have been deceitful and to have hesitated between the two sides, end quote. Well, this is kind of proof positive evidence that Canute knew a winner when he saw it, and when Edmund was dead, Godwin showed up at Canute's camp, probably before Edmund's body turned cold. And that bit about, quote, hesitating between two sides? Yeah, I think we all know who that refers to. Which begs the question regarding the only other major Englishman who survived Canute's early purges. His name was Leofrich. Leofrich was the son of Leofwin, one of Ethelred's eldermen prior to Swain Forkbeard's major incursions. He had three brothers, Northman, Edwin, and Godwin, not to be confused with our protagonist in this episode, different Godwin altogether. And Northman had been killed along with his elderman, Earl Edric of Mercia. As far as I can tell, Leofrich's earliest days in Canute's good graces are as mysterious as anything else during this time period. But at some point after Edric Strayona's and Northman's deaths, Canute must have seen something special in Leofrich and elevated him straight to Earl of Mercia. Again, trying to piece together what we can based on what we know and can safely imply, I just wonder if Leofrich had not stayed with his earl and his big brother when Edmund had headed south to lick his post-war wounds in his new kingdom of Wessex. I wonder if Leofrich displayed a staunch and proud loyalty to his king, even in the face of such hostility for such a decision. Of this, we can be sure. Godwin was a loyal man and Canute respected loyal men. Could Leofrich again, being the only other major English nobleman to have survived the purges, also survived due to the same exemplar reputation? It's worth considering, I think. But there's just one more piece of evidence that I'd like to throw out, and it involves a bit of a spoiler, so I apologize, but it might serve to prove why Leofrich was allowed to live, being the brother of Northman, and who was a retainer of Earl Edric, remember. I haven't found anything for sure, but it's worth mentioning that years into the future, two things come up that, believe me, we will flesh out in more detail in this season of the podcast. First, Leofrich backs Canute's son to succeed him to the throne, 
and this son is one of the boys Canute had had while married to Elfgifu of Northumbria. Why would he do that if there hadn't been some familial bond with Elfgifu of Northumbria already? What is this, 1016? Within a year, Canute will have nullified his marriage to Elfgifu, which wasn't fully accepted into Christian society anyway, in favor of a marriage alliance with the Dowager Queen of England, Queen Emma from Normandy, thus linking Denmark and England to Normandy again. As we've said already, this was a rock star play on Canute's end, but also on Emma's end as well. But any relationship with Elfgifu and her Northumbrian family would have had to have been established prior to Canute casting her and her two sons with him aside. And it's also said that she lived quietly for a time in Mercia afterward. There's a lot going on there, written between the lines of the Chronicles and various other sources of the time, but I think unless I'm missing something, there's something down that path to find in terms of Leofrich's place in the English society. The facts remain, Leofrich was chosen by Canute to be Earl of Mercia, and Godwin assumed Edmund's old kingdom and became Earl of Wessex. And before Canute could stop and just breathe for half a second, he had one more area that needed handling. Northumbria. This vast northern reach of England had always been a bit of a wild card. It served as a nice buffer between the bustling south and the clannish brutality of the kingdoms of Strathclyde and Alba, Alba being the old medieval name they used for Scotland. And the people of Northumbria seemed to be simultaneously mirroring the warlike nature of their northern neighbors, while also appealing enough to the trade networks and relationships that allowed them to succeed and prosper. Cities like York stood out as major centers in the region, and there were solid families who also vied for local control and influence, including control and influence across national borders. It was no picnic to live and survive in the north, so who better for Canute to catapult as his regional face there than a descendant of a polar bear? No, you heard that right. The man he placed as Earl of Northumbria had descended from a polar bear, which actually wasn't as odd or uncommon as you might think, but let's just play along and assume that it's completely true. You know, because I mean, why not, right? The man Canute tapped was named Seward, and he kind of appeared out of nowhere in the records, but a little digging shows us that Seward's cousin was actually one of Canute's trusted jarls back in Denmark, whose name was Ulf. Jarl Ulf was so important to Canute, in fact, that he was given Canute's sister's hand in marriage. Her name was Estrith. Friendly warning there, don't forget that relationship. It'll come in handy in a couple episodes. So, Earl Seward of Northumbria, Earl Leofrich of Mercia, Earl Godwin of Wessex, and for those listeners who remember a while back on the show, Earl Thorkell that is Thorkell the Tall, of East Anglia, comprised Canute's uppermost echelon of his new Anglo-Danish kingdom. So now let's return to Godwin now that we've got a better picture of um, of what Canute's England looked like. Taking quick stock of this guy so far, let's point out, that is Godwin, let's point out that he has risen above his father's perceived treachery toward the kingdom and somehow punching far above his weight class by finding himself named in Ethelstan's last will and testament, becoming a landowner to boot, 
most likely assuming the land his father forfeited. He then navigated away from his king to ride with the king's defecting son, that is Edmund, until the death of Edmund, to quite simply be at the whims of a murderous new monarch bent on redesigning his kingdom to his specifications. And after all that, this guy emerges as a freaking earl after it was all said and done. I mean, bravo, seriously. King Canute exiled a powerful nobleman named Ethelweird on April 17th, 1020 for supporting Etheling Edwig's little rebellion. You remember Edwig, the king of the churls? Yeah, him. And it was Godwin, due to his apparent loyalty toward his king during the matter, that is Canute king, who was gifted Ethelweird's land south of the Thames, which is to say pretty much the rest of Wessex that Godwin didn't already have. Oh, and sometime between that massive land gift and the expulsion of Thorkel the Tall in 1023 from East Anglia, Godwin became Canute's most trusted man and England's most powerful earl. And what is the ultimate gift you can bestow upon such a devoted subordinate? Canute gave his daughter Githa in marriage. Yeah, Godwin, in just a matter of maybe 10 years, went from Ethelred's heir apparent's most trusted man to Canute's most trusted man and his son-in-law. Now we start to see Godwin pop up naturally more and more as a leading member of Canute's gatherings and Witans. But it wasn't until the late 1020s when Godwin starts to put his chameleon-like abilities on full display. He's now a direct relative of Canute, son of Swain Forkbeard and grandson of Harold Bluetooth. Godwin's familial past may be seriously subject, you know, pirates and everything, but he is very clearly established at this point, and he shows, well, either his appreciation to his new father-in-law or some of that stone-cold calculation he becomes very well known for. Because Godwin and Githa start, start producing heirs like they're, you know, that year's next toy of the decade before Black Friday. Godwin is bound and determined to not let this king, you know, Ethelred things up. The more heirs Godwin produces, the better chances he has at expanding his power and influence across the island. And hey, who knows? Maybe even back in Denmark in a generation or two. Stranger successions have happened. This guy's not pulling any punches. He's here to win. Something. <laughs> if he coached soccer, he'd be making his players pass the ball around the back and midfields until something opened up. If he was the play caller for an American football team, he'd be running it every damn play. Godwin was grinding it out, play after play, minute after minute. He was in no hurry but he was also very aware of any slight openings in the defense in which to push the team forward. Just check out the names he gave his kids. He named his eldest son Swain, after Canute's father. His next eldest son? Harold, after Canute's grandfather. After him comes Tostig, named after one of Canute's more trusted warlords. Gunhild was named after Canute's daughter. His daughter, Gerth, was next, which, as far as we know, wasn't anything more than his dedication to keeping the Danish influence in the family. Leofwin was named after the father of the only other surviving nobleman of any significance in King Knut's court, which can be interpreted as 
Either he ran out of suitable Danish names, or that he more likely not only wanted to endear himself a bit more to Earl Leofrich of Mercia, but he also wanted to express his genuine admiration for Knut's eye for great men. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, right? Wolfnoth was a son named after Godwin's own father, as well as just another irresistible piece of evidence that Godwin was the son of that rascal pirate. And Edith. Ah, yes, Edith. It's an English name, but that's not why she's memorable. Tuck that one away, too. And finally, huh, after all those, <laughs> we have Elfgiva. But I mean, that's about all we know of her, her name. Other than that, she was probably married to either establish or solidify ongoing relations with another prominent family in England or abroad, or sadly, uh, she had passed away at some point, and the record just doesn't show us that. Ian Walker says it pretty succinctly in his book, Harold, quote, Canute's reign was a time for survivors, and Godwin was the greatest of these, end quote. You had to give it to this guy. He got game. And that game allowed him to supply money and men, quite a bit of it actually, to Canute for the king's invasion of Norway in 1028. This should spark a few things. We already know this story, to be honest, so we won't dwell on it much, but it's worth mentioning just the basics here. So number one, Canute's son and ex-wife pretty much turned somewhat quelled Norway into a terrorized region seething with resentment toward their Anglo-Danish overlords due to the harsh treatment, and high taxes. Number two, Norwegians rose in rebellion led by Olaf II Haraldsson, the future Saint Olaf. Number three, uh, King Olaf II was booted to Kiev, but quickly returned when Canute's son, Swain, yeah, an abundance of Swains, sorry, and regent to Norway, drowned off the coast of the Orkneys in 1030. And then finally, the final thing we should remember about this, Olaf, along with his little half-brother, the 15-year-old Harold Sigurdsson, met Canute's forces, many supplied by Earl Godwin, near the tiny hamlet of Stickelstad, where Olaf died and Harold was forced to flee to Kiev, and then began his epic journey that, well, it's not quite done yet. <laughs> but here's what's most important about Stickelstad, at least from the perspective of England. While Canute campaigned up north, or visited Denmark, or swung by to quell a little unrest along his Swedish territories, who, who did he tap to be his regent in England in his absence? It wasn't a Dane, which is interesting. Remember, Thorkell the Tall royally messed up back in 1023 and lost that gig. So that left the only other logical option, his son-in-law, Earl Godwin. There are times during the late 1020s and early 1030s when Godman, Godwin was quote-unquote acting monarch over all of England, if you can believe it. Remember how we discussed 1035 being this exceptionally crazy year? What with the death, death of Duke Roger I of Normandy, leaving young William in charge of that crap storm of a duchy? And then with the death of Canute himself, disrupting the very fabric of North Sea politics? The year 1035 wasn't just about Canute and Roger, even if their nicknames were The Great and Le Magnifique. Ever the political chameleon, Godwin began judging the various colors quickly shifting and coalescing around him, and he began shifting his appearance to fit this new environment. And the environment that seemed to fill his view was the rise of Canute's second child from his first marriage, 
Harold Knutson. This kid was a pretty well-liked young man, especially in Mercia and parts of Northumbria, and he'd managed to stay completely under the radar up to this point, finding a nice, quiet, idyllic life somewhere in central Mercia, a place where his Northumbrian mother held not-so-distant roots. He was an avid and very skillful hunter and was known for his trafficking, or excuse me, his tracking abilities, so he was aptly nicknamed Harold Harefoot, or Harold Swift of Feet. And Harold Harefoot saw an opportunity upon the death of his father, Knut. And Godwin did too, but it wasn't the same opportunity, and this put him at odds with this new kid on the block. See, over the years, if you think about it, who was the one constant during Godwin's rise from obscurity to regent of England? He'd seen the deaths of Ethelstan Etheling, King Ethelred II, Edmund Ironside, Edric Strayona, innumerable purged Anglo-Saxon noblemen and thanes, and now King Canute II, as well as the expulsion of the towering presence, the Jomsviking, Thorkel the Tall. Besides his fellow survivor, Earl Leofric of Mercia, there was only really one person who managed to do what he did so deftly at such a high level of risk and success. Who was it? Emma of Normandy. The Queen of England, for all intents and purposes, had already served as England's first lady for over 30 years, an almost unheard of feat. And Earl Leofrich and Earl Seward chose Harold Harefoot as Canute's legitimate successor. And we don't need to stretch too hard to understand that one. Harold had strong ties to both areas through his mother, Elfgifu of Northumbria. If Emma knew anything, it was that she also did what it took to survive, and there was no way Emma was going down without a fight. The fates of queens snubbed by the successor in those days was simple. Death or a nunnery. And Emma? She was no nun. She was determined to stay on top of the game she helped create, and she was able to secure Godwin's support in opposing her stepson. And this wasn't much of a stretch either because of the vast land holdings Emma had around southern England. Don't forget that Exeter was functionally her town, and she'd lived almost literally on top of the kingdom's treasury, the treasury being located in the same complex as her living quarters in the ancient Wessex capital of Winchester, located in Wessex. Unfortunately for her and Godwin, it wasn't an open and shut case. Though her youngest son, a man named Harthaknut, uh, translated as Hardnot, had been appointed regent of Denmark while Canute pretty much stayed in England for most of his reign. Harthaknut had formed Denmark more or less around him. And well, he prioritized, naturally, Denmark over anything else going on in England at the moment. And at the moment, Harthaknut was dealing with dad's failed policies in Norway, in the form of King Olaf II's illegitimate son, Magnus, seeking a little retribution by way of Denmark, becoming part of the Norse kingdom. And though Magnus was young, he was cared for growing up, and being the son of a recent martyr to the cause of Norwegian independence, he was seeking to fulfill the promise buried deep in his very name. Magnus was the Scandinavian derivation of Charles the Great, or... Charlemagne, and he wanted Canute's Denmark. I mean, 1035 was a cluster, if there ever was one. 
And with Magnus attacking Denmark, Hartha Knut was forced to pull the phone away from his ear for half a second and just yell upstairs, Not now, Mom! And Emma was forced to look elsewhere. But who else could possibly succeed Knut and keep her at the top? Message after message went out to Denmark and message after message returned with the same answer. Emma and Godwin were getting desperate. Poor Emma. If she only had, you know, other sons to look to. If only. Harold Harefoot was moving his forces of support south toward London, continuing to, to gain support along the way. And take a second to think about how this is developing. Harold was at the helm of a mass of military force, accompanied by two earls, Leofrich and Seward. And though Godwin never actually mobilized his feud, or Wessex as a whole, it's clear what was happening. Everyone was waiting on Godwin to swing his support. Everyone knew that it was bound to happen. In fact, there was really no reason for Godwin to dig his heels in to the point of civil war. There would be no benefit for anyone at this time in a civil war. And when Harold Harefoot came to London, he was formally crowned on November 12, 1035. But he then visited Canterbury, the traditional site of coronation. It was customary in Europe to have the local archbishop sanctify the coronation, making it more or less official in the eyes of the church in Rome. But Archbishop Ethelnoth refused to sanctify the son of Canute, despite the mounting support he controlled around the kingdom. In fact, Ethelnoth, as was in his right as the leading archbishop in England, took the crown and sat it upon the altar at Christ Church, where it lay for some time. Why? See, Ethelnoth was a Godwin man, and this no doubt was a stark reminder as to the power the Earl of Wessex still held. So, it finally came to the point when King Harold Harefoot, crown or not, finally made the bold move to ride straight into Wessex, having gathered his father's huscarls. As Harold rode into Winchester and took all of the treasury he and his men could carry with them, it was then that she knew that Hartha Canute wouldn't be coming. And this must have devastated her, that is Emma, knowing her son was on the only chance she had and he was simply unable to come to her aid. Emma was alone. Poor Emma. If only. But she actually did have other options, but the fact that she sat on them and not reached out certainly sucks some of the air out of her plight. I mean, if she's looking to contribute to her two other sons' lives, just about all we can say is that she's given them plenty to talk to their therapists about. She did have two other options by the name of Edward and Alfred, and they've been couch hopping across Normandy for the better part of two decades, you know, ever since she abandoned them and then married their father's usurper. Fortunately for Emma, Harold wasn't out for anything but to send a message to her and Godwin, except the inevitable. This visit was not meant as a cheap shot or a, or a preemptive strike against Wessex. It was simply a threat, a reminder that he had well enough English earls and thanes to support him, and despite what Godwin, Emma, or any of Godwin's people, archbishops included, thought, Harold Harefoot was 
the King of England in 1036. More than anything, though, it was a reminder about Hartha Knut's absence, which no doubt stung. Godwin held out as long as he possibly could. Honestly, when you break down the situation for what it was, it boiled down to England being split in three different ways. England, north of the Thames, was essentially ruled by two unofficial co-regents in Harold Harefoot and Hartha Knut, though, of course, Harold was the only one with his boots on the ground doing the work and making the decisions for the kingdom. The second part of England, south of the Thames, was governed by the money and words of both Earl Godwin and Emma, based in Winchester. But that whole not-my-president thing hasn't really ever worked, so politically, Harold Harefoot, having the support of the majority of the English nobility from 1035 when he was crowned to 1037 when his reign was accepted by the church, was most definitely the king, whether Godwin liked it or not. And sometime between 1036 and 1037, though, a strange letter appeared in Normandy, and it wasn't addressed to the duke. This letter was addressed to the two sons of the duke's great-aunt, actually. And it was an invitation back to England. That's... that's odd. I hope you enjoyed this next installment and first episode in the new season where we center our story around the fallout of Knut's death and the two-decade upheaval happening around the North Sea. I'm pretty excited about this season, and I sincerely hope you are both entertained and learning while we lay out the story, our story, of the Middle Ages. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast hosting service or app, Also, don't be a stranger. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, follow on Instagram, as well as reach me through email at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lot in store for the show this year, including bonus episodes that will fill in any backstory we're unable to tuck in during each episode, which will be found on Patreon. So I highly encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for as low as just a couple bucks per month. My 2021 goal is for this podcast to be 100% ad-free and listener-supported. Who knows? I'd love to even open up a merch outlet for Fortune's Wheel as well. I've got a lot of ideas collecting dust on the old mental shelf, and I'd like to throw these out to you. But we have to grow the show first, as you understand. So please, if you find the show at all worthwhile, then I ask you to continue to share the show. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.